The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound, Lord plant my feet on higher ground, Lord lift me up, Lord, lift me up and let me stand, and let me stand. my faith on Catch a gleam of glory bright, but still I'll pray till heaven I found. Lord, lead me on to higher ground. Lord, let me on. want my feet on higher ground. I want my feet planted firmly on higher ground. Every day as I pray, as I wait before God, as I seek his face, I ask that the Lord would plant my feet on higher ground. I want to finish this journey with Jesus. It is the topic of my heart. Today I'd like to do some plain talking with you about Jesus. I'm not quite sure how even to talk about him, for he has become a cultural relic in America. He has become something institutionalized. He's become someone who is far away and distant. So we talk about the theology and we talk about this and that. We watch with sentimental feelings 
but it's not the real Jesus of Scripture. There is no understanding today of the cause and effect relationship. I've been watching carefully what happens in Venezuela. I'm seeing people who are starving to death. People who are going and spending hours every day in line, hoping to buy just a few basic supplies to take care of their family. Others are are beginning to grow their own food. They're plowing up their yards. They're, they're finding places where they can plant a few seeds. Now over 8,000 yard gardens. Why? Well, because the grocery stores are empty. And they're going to starve to death if they don't grow their own food. And so they'll go and wait for hours in line. How I wish that men and women would come and wait for hours in the church line. Why don't they? Well, either because there's no food there, or because they're so satiated with America that there's no hunger in their heart for the real Jesus. We've been deceived. There is a, a lack of prayerfulness. There is a lack of hunger in America for Jesus because we have such an abundance, such a smorgasbord of everything the devil would lay out for us. A man would rather sit and watch a baseball game. A man would rather sit and watch a football game than be at the church house. How does this change? How do I even begin to talk about this in a way that that you'll begin to understand? If there is not an urgency in your heart, if there is not a a driving hunger in your heart for Jesus. It's only for one reason. You don't know Jesus. Oh, you know about him, but so does the devil. But you don't know Jesus because if you know Jesus, there will be such a drawing and such a hunger in your heart that you will spend whatever time, whatever money is necessary to be in the house of God. Unless there's no Jesus in that house of God. If it's just religion, jokes, laughter, social entertainment, then why would you want to go to the house of God? Because you can get that on television. I'm terrified for America. I've never in my life seen the upwelling of evil as I see it today in America. But it's not enough for us who are Christians to say, oh, it's evil in America today. No, I have to deal with my own heart, with the lack of interest in the things of God. 
the lack of interest in Jesus. We have to seek higher ground because the flood of wickedness is coming like a storm into America. Every vile thing is being lifted up. Vile people. Wicked people are cheating and lying and stealing and controlling our political system in America, controlling our media in America, controlling the news, controlling every outlet. Wicked, evil people are controlling these things. And so everybody's doing it, everybody's sinning, everybody's sexualized, everybody is hungry for more of their television show, their sports. But where's the hunger for Jesus? So today we're going to do some very plain talk. We're going to review some of what we did yesterday, and then we're going to dive right into the middle of it. I have two questions for you. They're questions that Bunyan raises in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. I want to read them for you. The first question. The first question. How does the saving grace of God make itself known in your heart, in your life? How does the saving grace of God make itself known? Now, where the grace of God is truly at work, it produces conviction of sin. And as the converted soul becomes aware of the defilement of his nature and the sin of unbelief, a sin that he now knows will certainly send him to hell unless he finds mercy at God's hand by faith in Jesus Christ, this grace begins to work Now, the problem is when we begin to be awakened by the grace of God and it begins to produce a sorrow and a shame for sin, we find Jesus asking for a total change in our behavior calling for us to cling to him, to give up everything except Jesus and search after him. The problem is, as this work of grace begins to happen in a man's heart, it is very seldom that that man concludes that this is the work of grace because of the corruption of his earthly nature, because of the continued faultiness of his ability to reason, because of the word from the pastor that you're saved regardless of your sin and you don't have to leave your sin, because of the word from the pastor and the church that grace is simply a blanket that covers you, 
as the true work of God's grace begins to work in your heart and begins to expose you, that work is quickly put down by the modern church. So when that grace begins to stir in the heart, the work is misjudged as the work of Satan trying to bring condemnation and legalism to you. It is utterly important that the first works of grace that begin to stir our heart awake be nurtured, not cast off. If this broadcast is going to be of any value to you, now let me say it very plainly. If Pilgrim's Progress is going to be of any value to you, there will have to be dramatic changes in your behavior. Some of you are going to have to stop going to the worldly church. And you're going to have to find a place where Jesus is truly lifted up, where there is not entertainment and foolishness, and everything is about the song and the dance. You're going to have to flee from that church. If the plain talk you're going to hear today that begins to stir the work of grace in your heart, you are going to have to understand that you must plead for God to open the gates of righteousness holiness, heart purity to you. This grace requires sound judgment. You must understand that God is trying to do something for you. That God is attempting to reach you. And if you cast off this work of grace that begins to happen in your heart as simple legalism or simply condemnation, and you comfort yourself and you say, I'm saved in spite of my sin, the work of God is stopped in your heart. And some of you have been taught for so many years the lie of eternal security. You've been taught for so many years the lie that all you have to do is trust Jesus and he saves you and he has unconditional love for you. If you have been taught unconditional love of God, you have been seared by the devil. There is no such thing as unconditional love of God except as it was expressed at the cross. Unconditional love was expressed at the cross. But to access that unconditional love, the work of grace must run its full course in our lives. Some of you are going to have to turn your televisions off and get, an out, get them out of your homes because they are a constant source of temptation to you. Some of you are going to have to turn the internet off. Some of you are going to have to give up your cell phones for a while. Some of you are going to have to turn away from your sports and your favorite pastimes. 
Some of you are going to have to turn away from your ambition for money, from lying, from cheating, from stealing, from fornication, from adultery. Some of you who are listening today, you have sinned grievously against God, but you have comforted your heart, and as time has passed since your sin, you have comforted your heart that you're okay. You don't have anything to worry about. You know religion. You know about Jesus. Well, so does the devil. Never made any difference to the devil. Knowing about Jesus will not save you. The only thing that can save you is the saving grace of God as it makes itself known in your life by a very specific work of holiness, of heart holiness, of heart purity, of family holiness. But some of you don't want to be disturbed. You don't want to have to drive a long distance to find a holiness church. You don't want to have to change friendships with all the people that you love. So you continue in your drinking and your alcoholism. You continue in your sin against God. You'll once in a while be convicted and you may cry a few crocodile tears, but you're not going to really change your life. The truth is, your life and your conversation must be sharply changed from the world. You must become a person who abhors his sin and himself for his sinning. You must be a person who is willing to deal with sin in your family. You cannot be so busy with the world that you have no time for Jesus. That you have no time to pray as a husband and wife together. I often will ask a couple, are you praying together? Are you reading the scriptures together? Well, no, pastor, we're, we just don't have time. Really? That tells me that you're not truly walking with Jesus. There is a lack of conviction. There is a lack of hunger in your heart. The work of grace has not accomplished its purpose in your life. If you're not praying, mister, with your wife, you are sinning against her. If you are not reading the scriptures together, mister, you are sinning against her. You are to lead your wife to heaven. You are to love her. And if you love her, you will ensure number one in your heart is to win her heart to Jesus' heart. There must be a practical demonstration of a godly life, a life of faith and love through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now let me ask the second question. Does your life and your conduct 
testify or prove your claim of God's grace? Or does your religion consist of words only with no deeds? Are you a Christian? Yes or no? If you answer yes, I say to you, has the grace of God accomplished its purpose in your life and are now causing you to live hungry for Jesus, seeking after him, reading the scriptures, praying, walking humbly before God? Or do you follow wicked ways? I'm telling you plainly, the Christian faith has received a a very bad reputation in, in America because of the ungodly conduct of those who call themselves Christians. People stumble today and are lost because of the wicked ways of the church. People are being destroyed because of the lack of godliness in the local church and in the pastor. Everything unclean, swearing, lying, cheating, stealing, sexual impurity, every kind of wickedness goes on as the Christian slumbers in his sleep watching the wickedness of the world and enjoying the things of darkness. Most who call themselves Christians today in America are a true shame to Jesus Christ. Now, where does this manifest itself most prominently. Well, Pastor James identifies that for us in the third chapter of the book of James. And I want to ask you very frankly, very plainly, do you know Jesus? Or do you only know of him? Have the gates of righteousness been opened to you? Have have you sought after holiness with all of your heart? Have you a fire kindled in your heart for Jesus? Or is the fire in your heart for the world and the entertainment of the world and the money of the world and the life of the world? You know, before I go to the book of of James, please follow me. I want to go and be a little more specific. There are three sins that are specifically spoken about in 1 John. These sins are age 
sensitive. In other words, Satan has designed a special sin for whatever age you are. He knows that as we grow older, we change. Now, some, no matter what age they are, are going to sin in all three of these areas. But these these sins are particularly sensitive for people who call themselves Christians. The Apostle John, in the first book of 1 John, in the second chapter, opens these verses this way. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, do you understand, if if the work of grace has not been done in your heart, if it's not being done now in your heart, calling you to Jesus, turning you from the wickedness of the world, it is because the love of the Father is not in you. You may be very religious, but the love of the Father is not in you. And that leaves you open for these three sins. The sin of the young, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man. In other words, the first sin is the lust of the flesh. In youth, the the hormones are hopping. And so the lust of the flesh is right up there on top. Drugs, sex, partying, going out, being wild, going to this club and then another club and then a strip club and then over here and all the time drinking until finally that young person is so wiped out And it takes away the pain of their heart. But they have no love of the Father in their heart. How many young people in the church I've seen destroyed by lusting for a woman. Lusting after things of the, of the body, of the flesh. It's a young man's sin. But old men are still caught in it. But it's particularly designed for the young. Then for middle age. Sin number two. The natural lust of collecting things. Status. A career. Having the right car. Having the right house having the right jewelry, having the right job. It's collecting things. A man who is 30 to 40 years of age is often driven to success, knowing I have to make it now or I'll never make it. And then in his 40s, he wants to collect the rewards and accumulate stuff 
have the toys, have the motorcycle, have the have the sports car, have his collection of toys, the boat. That consumes his heart. The devil designs this for the middle-aged man. And then there's a third sin. The boasting of what he has and does. In other words, the older man wants respect. The older man wants to drive his Corvette and have people say, wow, or his Porsche, wow, or his Lamborghini, and people say, wow, there's a man dressed right. He has his toys all lined up. talks about what he's done, his war stories, his experiences. I sat with a group of men just recently. And one of these men in his business, in his government service, wanted to describe for all of us as men the story, he's now retired, wanted to describe the story of of his brave action in the face of a very difficult situation and how he won. He was the man. Build up his ego. Caused all the men around the table listening to say, wow, you're the man. That's the sin of a man getting ready or is retired, boasting, And now he wants to travel the world. He wants to visit all the places around the world. He wants to be able to go and say, oh, I went here and there, and here are the pictures, and wow, I'm somebody. I I went on that Viking cruise. I went here. I went there. I'm the man of the world. I'm somebody. John says, the world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Satan has designed temptations for us at each age. And all of them are meant to take us away from Jesus. We'll pay the price to go on the cruise. We'll pay the price to be the hero. And when we can't be the hero, men often are depressed. Around the age of 50, we begin to ask the question, what have I accomplished in my life? And now I'm 50 years old, and now I have a few years to prove that I'm the man. And so often in the 50s, men will become driven, driven to change their wives, driven to change their clothes, driven to to look young again and, and, and virile again and try to make themselves into somebody because they want their life to count for something. They want to be respected by people. And all of these things cause us to turn aside from Jesus. 
Where is the man or woman who will come and cry out before God, who will repent for his sin and his arrogance, who will turn from the lust of the flesh, who will turn from the pride of life, who will turn from the boasting, who will pay whatever is necessary to be at the church house to hear about Jesus. I remember in college, I've shared this before, but let me share it again. I was walking down the hall of my of my building where the where the classes were held and I'd not gone out this basement door before but a voice caught me as I was walking it was the voice of an old man I stopped I listened he was teaching a class about Jesus Intro to the New Testament. And I stopped. His voice caught me. The voice was strong, passionate, but it held a a humility that I'd not heard before. The man's name was mentioned. I stood there and listened as Dr. Minchin taught this class. I was captivated. I'd never heard anybody talk about Jesus the way Dr. Minchin talked about him. It was plain to me that he knew Jesus. As he spoke about the glory of Jesus, as he spoke about the love of Jesus, as he spoke about Jesus pouring out his life on Calvary's cross. I was captivated. I didn't know this Jesus. And then I went on to seminary. Nobody there knew Jesus. They knew all the theology, but they didn't know Jesus. And then I went to my first church assignment. My first large church assignment. I'd pastored three very small country churches. This was my first large church assignment. I preached my introductory sermon. And I stood at the door, shaking hands with all of the members as they left that church that day. And this one bald-headed old man, tall, willowy like a bean, was one of the elders of the church. He took my hand in his and cupped his other hand over that. And with tears in his eyes, he said, Pastor, Will you just tell us about Jesus? I assured him I would, but I was taken back. Because to be honest with you, 
I didn't know how to talk about Jesus like Dr. Minchin did. Because I didn't know Jesus. I knew all the theology. I knew... I'd been through graduate school. I knew the Greek. I knew the Hebrew. But I didn't know Jesus. Oh, my brother, my sister, do you know Jesus Christ today? Has he captured your heart? Have you turned to him? Pastor James begins to talk to us about a a surefire test that will tell us, very honestly, where we are with Jesus. We need outward signs to give us clues about whether the work of grace has accomplished its, its work in our hearts. He opens chapter 3 with, My brethren, and also my sisters, not many must become teachers knowing that we will receive greater judgments. In other words, someone who simply wants to teach the information, they will will be judged harshly. He says, we all make mistakes in numerous ways. If anyone does not make a mistake by what is said, this man is perfect. This man is mature. He's able to hold in check the whole body. He's been given over to Jesus, in other words. So he's giving us a clue. If your words... If your tongue brings condemnation on other people, if your tongue bites other people, then the work of grace has not been accomplished yet in your heart. You may know all the theology, but our tongue gives us away. He says, Verse 3, you notice we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, and we direct their whole body. You also consider the ships being so great, being driven by violent winds, but they're guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the desire of the one steering, he may take it with the rudder. So the tongue is also small but it talks big. Consider how how a fire so small sets aflame a forest so large. Now the tongue is a fire, the word, the world of iniquity. So the tongue is set in our members, defiling the whole body and setting on fire the course of nature, even being set on fire by by hell. So James is saying, look, 
Listen to what your tongue is saying to people. Listen and watch if your tongue is setting ablaze another person's life. A forest fire burns everything, killing the animals, burning up our homes, destroying. I can't tell you how many relationships have been utterly destroyed by by words spoken quickly and harshly, condemning breaking. The old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, oh, I want to tell you, words are more destructive than sticks and stones. I have a person I care a great deal about. And the Lord has simply said to me, don't bite them. Don't bite them. In other words, don't use your tongue to judge them. Do not speak words harshly to them. Don't try to force them to align with your desires, your flesh. You can tell if the grace of God has been effective in your life by whether angry words flow from your mouth when you are jostled and someone does not go the way you want them to go. The tongue defiles your whole body. I've seen in churches where Gossip begins, lies, but that gossip sets on fire the whole church. I'll never forget, I was in a church in seminary, and the pianist and the, and the organist began to gossip in the church. The pastor confronted them, and they denied it. And they continued their gossip. They were fighting one with another, and they were trying to get the church on each of their sides. One night, the pastor called a church meeting. And he made certain that this organist and this pianist were both present in the church. And he brought them up on charges before the congregation and asked that they be disciplined. Well, the church was very surprised. They'd not seen this before. The question was, what should happen to them? And the pastor said, I would like the organist and the pianist to sit down and no longer play their instruments. And the church immediately said, but wait a minute, what are we going to do for a pianist? What are we going to do for an organist? And the pastor said, the church is on fire. Don't you understand? 
Their gossip is destroying us. And the organist and the pianist were forced to sit down. The organist repented. The pianist did not. Instead, both she and her husband began to wage a war against the pastor, gossiping about him. Another church meeting was called, and the pastor asked that this couple be barred from attending the church any longer. Now, I think only once or twice in my whole life have I ever asked that a person be barred from the church. And both times it was because of sin. And the refusal to turn from their sin. This pastor was an elderly man and very wise in the ways of human hearts. The pianist and her husband left the church. And there was a sweet, sweet spirit of God that came into that fellowship. And they quickly began to grow and attract new members. Has your tongue set on fire your family or your church? Has your tongue set on fire your relationship. And then when you were confronted with your tongue and what you were saying and how you were trying to put yourself up as being somebody, did you run or did you repent? Did you accuse and judge or did you repent? I've watched, even at the National Prayer Chapel, as a man began to undercut, try to force his will. I remember going to David Wilkerson's church at Times Square. He was my pastor. And he asked if I would please come to New York City that he needed to talk and pray with me, and so I did so. And he told me a sad story. He said, Ray, my brother was a member of our pastoral staff. And he and the church choir got together and began to gossip about me to remove me from the church so that my brother could take it over. He said there were about 300 people involved. He said we risk losing my brother on the pastoral staff and we began to risk losing our choir. And so we prayed. We cried out to God. I later found what happened. He shared with me. 
he met with his brother and confronted him and asked him to please turn in his resignation and to leave the church. He asked the choir director to please resign and to leave the church. It went to the board of of elders. And the board of elders agreed with Pastor David's decision and formally asked both for their resignations. The next Sunday, heartbroken, after 300 members left Times Square Church in anger and in bitterness, Pastor David cried out to the Lord, and he said, Lord, I'm asking today at Times Square Church that 300 people make a first-time decision to follow Jesus and become members of Times Square Church to replace those we have lost. He said, Ray, 300 people came forward to the altar that day, and they replaced the 300 who left. He said there was such a sweet spirit that entered into the Times Square Church, and then his brother came and repented, and the brothers were reunited and healed not in ministry, for he had lost his position at Times Square Church, but he was restored as David's brother, for he fully repented. What I'm saying to you today is that there needs to be a hunger in our hearts for Jesus, and there must be a turning with the tongue from every wickedness and every vile thing, that our tongue sets on fire the forest in the church or in our family or at our workplace and destroys. Now, look at how you act with your tongue. Look at what you say with your tongue. Are you a grumbler? Are you a complainer? Are you a person who is undercutting brothers and sisters? Are you judging others with your tongue? Pastor James says, Out of the same mouth comes forth blessing and curses. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. The spring does not pour forth sweet and bitter water out of the same opening, does it? My brother, a fig tree is not able to bear olives or a grapevine figs, is it? So no spring is able to produce salty and sweet water. Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy causes the tongue to go crazy. So let's come back to just plain talk. Are you walking with Jesus today? Are you filled with his spirit? Do you know his presence in your life? Are you seeking him with all of your heart? Or are you interested in the world, the flesh, and the devil? 
What is your stand with Jesus today? Well, we're out of time for this broadcast. I want to pray with you. Lord, I cry out to you for my brothers and sisters today, and I ask that your spirit come and quicken. Lord, thank you for your kindness and your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your passion for us, Jesus. I ask that you would put passion in our hearts today for you, Jesus. Convict us and turn us. Lord, let our tongues be used only for prayer and blessing and love. Lord, don't let us bite one another, but turn, O Holy Spirit, and change us. Let the work of grace be fully accomplished in our hearts. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress today. I'm Ray Greenley, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, nationalprayerchapel.com. There you'll find CDs, podcasts. You'll find things of great value. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Of his glory with great joy, with great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Christ